for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Oprah did it. So did Barbara Streisand. Even Bill Clinton did it for a while. More than 23 million books have been sold about it. The New York Times profiled the doctor behind it. Bobby Flay? He developed recipes for a cookbook based on it. It inspired its own branded line of food products. Yeah, I'm talking about the South Beach diet. I'm Melissa Hull. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. And we're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories of the changing American South. And today, Gravy is going on a diet. Typically at SFA, we talk about foodways, the ways culture, community, and access shape what we eat and how we eat it. And we don't talk much about diets or dieting or diet books. That changes today. (laughs) Because diets don't just happen. They are the product of a well-funded industry with ad budgets and celebrity endorsements and supply chains. And they absolutely change the way we think about our food. This place shakes up all the rules. In 2003, the South Beach diet entered the popular lexicon. New South Beach diet foods. It quickly rose to the upper echelons of the canon of American diet crazes. But what exactly did the South Beach diet represent? And why did it become so popular? To answer that, we have to start by digging into the history of diet books in America and how and why they so masterfully captured the popular imagination. Diet books have been bestsellers for a long time, by some accounts. The Atkins series sold more than 20 million copies. The South Beach Diet sold about 10 million. And Eat Right for Your Tight sold another 7 million. And the way I calculated this was that just these three diet books, the series of Atkins, South Beach, and Eat Right for Your Tight, could fill every shelf in the Library of Congress and there's still a copy left over to circulate at every American public library. That's Adrienne Batar, a lecturer at Cornell. She's an academic and cultural critic who looks at American culture through diet culture. Her 2018 book, Diet and the Disease of Civilization, chronicles popular diets across the 20th century and what sort of values each revealed about American culture. People aren't reading and following and living by and you know, planning their meals by Shakespeare and Dickens and Twain and Hemingway. This is what people really read. And I think if you're actually going to be attuned to the class politics of literary scholarship, if you want to pay attention to what people read, what people read are diet books. Clearly, diets influence what and how people eat. I mean, obviously, right? Because they're prescriptive. They claim what types of foods are good for you or bad for you, according to whatever the ideology of the diet is. But these types of diets emerge from a well-funded industry with arsenals of advertisements and celebrities at their disposal. 
and they can produce their own microcultures, packed full of practices and values as intricate and dynamic as other food cultures. So many people, when they think of diets, they think of the practice of dieting and diet culture and, you know, fat phobia and like prejudice in the healthcare system and all this awful stuff. But if you actually look at the text, like as a literary scholar or as a historian, like they're really sort of compelling stories. For you, I mean, you talk about this is how people organize their lives and choose what to eat and what foods are good. I mean, that to me sounds not dissimilar to a religious text. Do you see any sort of parallels there? I mean, what does that, what does a diet book mean in American life? So it's not, it's never really just about food from, I said, vast, vast majority of these diets. It's about creating a sense of self, creating a very optimistic sense of who you might become, who your friends might be, the social life you'll create. I think that sense of group identity is really important. You could make the argument that it takes some of the role that religion may have played when it was sort of more integral part of many Americans' lives. The Church of South Beach. To anyone who has watched loved ones swear by keto, prostrate themselves before a yoga instructor, or build an altar around their at-home Peloton bike, the idea of diets and health crazes inspiring religious devotion probably doesn't sound too far off. What I love about Adrian's work is that it takes diets and the people who follow them seriously, which is not to say uncritically, but she writes about how diets sell these utopian ideas about who you might become if you follow them. And in doing so, she uncovers a lot about both the anxieties and aspirations of everyday Americans. Did you encounter a lot of diet literature growing up? Was it on your family bookcases in the way that it is on a lot of people's? I'm just curious for you, what was sort of your first exposure to diet books? Yeah, my mom was sort of periodically on the Atkins diet on and off, and she's still sort of on and off whenever she wants to lose some weight. And it's always like the same four pounds you know, that she's trying to lose. So I remember reading the Atkins diet when I was, I don't know, like 10, um, just for fun. Like I wasn't interested in my own weight. I didn't find it personally applicable, but I remember just thinking like, oh, this is like a really fun project that mom's doing. It involves all these different exciting foods. And there's a sense of like hope and optimism, even in Atkins. I think there was a little bit of naivete that worked in my favor. Diets have been around for a long time in American culture. According to Adrian, one of the first best-selling diet books in America was Diet and Health with Key to the Calories by a doctor named Lulu Hunt Peters. This was in 1918. So she actually dedicated it with permission to Herbert Hoover, who were so important, you know, so integral in food, food aid relief um, during the war. And she saw both conservation as being a sort of personal project for weight loss and increased health, but then also conservation as being a political, of great political importance because some of that food that could be saved could have been used to provide relief for starving citizens in Belgium or other parts of Soviet ailing and ailing Europe. And the book is funny. It's empathetic. It's, it's, it's um, sensitive. It makes fun of herself and her readership in a way that's very lighthearted. And it really marks, I think, one of the turning points in American diet literature 
where the author speaks from a point of personal empathy and saying, you know, I, I understand your plight. This is how I lost weight. My expertise might be, you know, medical or scientific or, you know, rooted in the science of nutrition, but I understand sort of the emotional heft of this endeavor that you're taking on. Dr. Lulu Hunt-Peters was the first author to popularize the idea of counting calories, in part because calories were a relatively new invention. Keep in mind, in 1918, industrialization had transformed both the American social fabric and the American diet. Moving to a city and working at a factory meant that you had to schedule, cook, and eat your meals much differently than you would on a farm. And that brings us to the burning question of calories. Just a few decades before Dr. Peter's book, scientists had introduced the concept of the calorie as a nutritional unit of energy. A body is similar to a machine. It runs on fuel called calories. You could imagine this new diet culture she peddled as really in line with the industrialization of that time. Just as bosses tried to maximize profits by breaking down assembly line work into discrete, repetitive tasks, her new calorie-conscious approach to food encouraged her readers to maximize a body's health by conceptualizing the food they ate as discrete, repeatable units, as calories. Adrian says that after Dr. Lulu Hunt-Peters' book, diet literature in America split into two camps. Diets for quote-unquote health, which were generally marketed towards men, especially middle-class men, and diets for looks, which were generally marketed towards women. Measurements and a mirror tell the story. As anyone who is overweight knows all too well, Excess fat has a way of lodging in spots that spoil the figure. Now, if we think about diets, even the sort of most ugly iterations of diet culture, we'll see like it's just diet for weight loss. Like you're just trying to get a larger body smaller. But if you look at like early 20th century diets, you'll see all these anxieties and concerns, which thankfully we don't have anymore about like, like the shape of your wrist, the slenderness of your neck, the ways in which you can eat certain foods to improve your complexion or to improve the lines of your, the loveliness of your lines. So there was a real aesthetic concern that was harder to disguise in this like language of health seeking. That sort of led to this diet for weight loss is seen as sort of feminine, unscientific, un, like apolitical, not important, and very much the province of women. But a panic over obesity would begin to change that. In the 1990s, more and more public figures began to discuss the so-called obesity epidemic. America is truly suffering from a new epidemic, an epidemic of disease and disability and death, all traced to the plain fact that too many Americans are too big. So the language here is really important because we have this sort of moral panic that wasn't just women trying to get into a little black dress, and it wasn't just the successful failures of men trying to correct their cardiovascular issues, but really the sense that this was a national problem with the health of the nation at stake. Like the stakes could not be higher. It is important to note that today, it is far more popularly understood that being overweight does not necessarily mean being unhealthy. And many thoughtful nutritionists argue against dieting and calorie counting. But in the 1990s, 
a moral panic about obesity was rearing its head. And prescriptive diets became artillery in this fight. All of us have to recommit ourselves to doing what we know is best for us. And personal responsibility is the key. One of the most popular diets around that time was the Atkins diet, which you probably already know about. Super low carb, open season on proteins and fats. So many people took advantage, you know, took took his advice to the fullest extent, where there was just a lot of bacon, there was a lot of hamburgers with no buns and tons of mayonnaise. It was a really sort of high cholesterol, high fat diet. However, during that same era, the American Heart Association promoted completely opposite dietary advice, encouraging lower fat diets to prevent heart disease. Think olive oil, skinless chicken breasts, steamed vegetables. You know the deal. Then, in the early 2000s, a new diet emerged. It promised weight loss and heart health. And it didn't just tiptoe the middle ground between Atkins and the American Heart Association. It strutted right down Miami Beach in a bikini. When we come back, we'll get the skinny on Dr. Arthur Agston, a cardiologist who published a new manual for eating. The South Beach Diet. Bum, 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 bum. For eight generations, the Samuels family has distilled American whiskey. Today, Rob Samuels, the grandson of founder Bill Samuels Sr., oversees the operation of the Maker's Mark Distillery. From the soft red winter wheat they've sourced from the same local farm for over 60 years to the char in their barrels, every step in the bourbon-making process is carefully crafted just like Bill Samuel Sr. did when he first created the handmade bourbon. For their excellent spirits and their support of this podcast, SFA thanks Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. Before the break, we talked about how diet books have been with us since at least 1918, when Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters published Diet and Health with the Key to the Calories during World War I, encouraging maintaining one's health as a patriotic act that enabled the country to send more food to those who needed it abroad. In the early 2000s, a new diet emerged. It also tried to solve a national problem, this time the obesity epidemic and concerns over heart health. At that time, some diets were promoting weight loss through cutting carbs, while others were promoting heart health through cutting fats. But this new diet sought to offer a middle road. Now you can lose weight fast and get into the best shape of your life. The South Beach diet encouraged you to eat good carbs, like vegetables and beans, and good fats, like extra virgin olive oil. And in doing so, it promised those who followed it a healthy heart and a rocking beach bod. I'm Jennifer and I lost 22 pounds on the South Beach diet. I think South Beach really came in and said, you can have a more accommodating diet, but still try to still be losing weight, but not have that sort of smack of desperation. I think maybe the Atkins had, ta- had taken on by then. And I reread part of the introduction to the original edition. And he was saying in no uncertain terms that he designed this for cardiovascular health, full stop. It was a great side effect that people were doing it to get into their, you know, tankinis on the beaches of South Beach. It was very encouraging to him. But what he cared about was heart health. That's it. So he was able to have this very sort of sort of import this 
this like 1950s language about the sort of masculine concern about cardiovascular health onto a diet that became very much entrenched in the sort of glamour and lose weight fast, you know, aura of, of, of you know, people on, in swimsuits um, and on South Beach. So he was able to sort of marry those two strands I think in a really unique way because he named it the South Beach diet and he wouldn't call it the heart health diet. The South Beach diet book was published in 2003 on the heels of a moral panic about the health of the country embodied by the idea of an obesity epidemic. But that epidemic was not totalizing. One, you're saying it affects everybody. Did it affect everybody in the way that we say a recession affects everybody, but we know that there are certain people who Mm -hmm. are less impacted and certain people who have a much larger impact in their individual lives? And I think we know now from hindsight that the rich are largely immune to many of the health effects of obesity, even if they uh, fall into that category of obesity as defined by BMI, that obesity and class are really tightly linked. But I think at the time, without this sort of privilege of hindsight, there was a concern, probably even among the elite, that this was gonna sort of handicap the country. When we think of epidemics, we tend to think of problems that affect everybody. But the truth is, rarely do health issues impact everybody equally. In fact, class, race, access, and so many other factors make certain people more vulnerable to certain phenomena. And what happens then is that health becomes a euphemism for wealth. So you can probably guess that the South Beach and South Beach diet was named for the neighborhood where Dr. Agatson worked in Miami Beach. It's not uncommon to name trends and trendy diets after places where well-to-do people live, party, and vacation. We've heard of the Mediterranean diet, the Hamptons diet, the Beverly Hills diet. The South Beach name was designed to evoke the mecca of sunning and clubbing. A place for rich, beautiful, thin people. But South Beach wasn't always seen as so glamorous and youthful. For a while, South Beach was known as a popular destination for Jewish retirees. When Cubans and other immigrants began to populate the neighborhood, it acquired a reputation for crime. Movies like Scarface and shows like Miami Vice played off the neighborhood's stereotyped image of urban decay. But they also popularized the South Beach aesthetic by showcasing its chic art deco buildings, fancy cars, and bikini-clad women. When designer Gianni Versace later moved to the area, other fashion industry professionals, including models, began to move there too. Developers followed suit, erecting luxury high-rises and driving up property prices. Today. South Beach is known as an expensive, trendy place to live, party, and eat. And South Beach is home to dozens of restaurants, as well as the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. The locale boasts celebrity chefs, tasting menus, and hard-to-get reservations. It's full of the kinds of culinary destinations that people who spend lots of money on food care about. 
These restaurants may not follow the South Beach diet that Dr. Agatson proposed nearly 20 years ago, but living in South Beach and eating at one of these fancy restaurants promises to deliver the same thing as the South Beach diet, to be one of the chosen beautiful people. So I think when you're thinking about diet and class, a lot of the ways in which food encodes sort of class ideals isn't written out into a book. So I think food is a really sort of subtle and sort of dangerous way that class is preserved and coded and sort of sanctified. Today, to publicly diet is considered a little gauche, at least in the circles I run in. Critiques of dieting by celebrities and Instagram influencers may be proclaimed radical, but those same folks often readily promote wellness culture through clean eating or active lifestyles. It kind of feels like a rose by another name. There has been a real turn against this idea of trying to diet for lose, to lose weight. There's this romance that beautiful people shouldn't need to diet. It's natural. Right. It's not. There's a sense that if you're sort of truly naturally beautiful and healthy and active and fit, you shouldn't be counting calories or points or weighing your food. That that is sort of fuddy-duddy in particular, and it's not truly embracing what now very euphemistically is called, you know, the pursuit of a healthy and active lifestyle. So I think in a lot of ways, this is sort of seen as a feminist celebration of being you know, more accepting of diverse body types. And there has been some of that, but I think I see it as a step backwards because what I think a lot of dieting has done is gone undercover. Browsing goop for high-end wellness products, watching your favorite vegan chef cook up a trendy recipe, or following along with a yoga with Adrian video, they all seem to scratch the same itch as that first diet book by Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters in 1918. The fantasy that if we change what we consume, we can change who we are. And that fantasy of who we want to become is so often based on whatever American culture values at that particular moment, whether that's patriotism, a curvy figure, or healthy living. The South Beach diet was a diet of a particular moment. But today, you might not see as many actual diet books. However, you probably see influencers and celebrities selling ways of eating. And those ways of eating, whether it be gluten-free, vegan, or keto, can become as integral to someone's identity as the food that they grew up with. What makes it all different, though, is that there's massive money to be made. And frankly, dieting can have some really toxic and lasting impacts. The fact of the matter is that diet books are so often aspirational, not just because they promise us a different body, but also because they promise us the ability to be the kind of person who has that body. And usually that means to be a person with money and power, the kind of person who determines what a beautiful, healthy body is. Gravy was reported and produced by Katie Jane Fernelius. Katie lived in Lagos, Nigeria from 2016 to 2017 on a Fulbright Research Fellowship and regularly travels back to West Africa. Or she will again soon. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. 
Visit us at southernfoodways.org to immerse yourself in our films and oral histories. While you're there, we'd be much obliged if you'd consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend. And pass the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around.